minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Hopefully I'll be able to stimulate a few cerebral sulci because unfortunately in 21st century Western culture, they're basically dead, deadened by an avalanche of... How shall I put it? Irrelevant stuff. You know, we get heated up about all these things that don't really matter and we forget all the things that matter. And if you wonder what anarchy is all about, very simple concept, anarchos without rulers. What's the central principle? Well, how do you create a society without rulers? Well, what gives rulers the ability to exercise their wishes ahead of the wishes of billions of other people? Very simply, inequalities in power and wealth. So if you're involved in the struggle to devolve share power or in the struggle to hold wealth in common, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, whether you've got your horns, tails or a halo, I'm afraid you're an anarchist. You're involved in that struggle to share power and wealth. My name's Joseph Toscano. So it's very difficult, you know, I've been doing this for 43, 44 years and uh, it's difficult to come up with uh, something new every week and obviously there is repetition over that period of time. Not that I expect any poor listener to have been listening since 1977. You would have been demented by now. But what's the purpose of the Anarchist World this week? Well, the purpose of the Anarchist World this week is basically to change the way people think. The Way You Think. Now, remember there's a famous Steve Biko uh, uh, phrase. Steve Biko was the anti-apartheid activist who was murdered in apartheid South Africa, I think in the late 1970s. And he said when he saw the Soweto riots erupting in uh, Soweto in South Africa and he saw the children shaming their parents by going out into the streets and being killed by the apartheid forces' bullets. These are children between 10 and about 16. And he said, change the way they think, things will never be the same again. And that's our major stumbling block as radical activists, as people who want to create an egalitarian community. It's about changing the way people think in this country. Now, I'm not grandiose enough to believe that I have any major influence anywhere, but I do know the anarchist world this week does have an influence on 
people, a small number of people, an exceptionally small number of people. And many of these people have changed their way, they have fought about things because of the program and because of the issues we raise and how we raise these issues and how we tackle these issues. And hopefully that's the catalyst which will launch them into a career, non-paid career, a voluntary career as an activist. Because once we change the way we think about specific issues, about the way society is structured, about the way uh, life is organised, about our purpose for existence, about our role within our communities and within the nation, then things are never the same again because we expect more and more and more. It's like the uh, Charles Dickens uh, parable when the little boy turned up, put out his hand and he said, more, and the the bloke in charge said, more, more. The little boy said, yes, it's about more. It's about wanting more from living than being a carping, cringing, complaining consumer. Because changes over the last 40 years have changed the way Australians think. And one of those major changes has been the introduction of superannuation, where people's wages have been forcefully pushed into a retirement scheme which is totally reliant, over 50% reliant, on the stock market, and the other 50% is reliant you know, on the property market and all the other investment strategies. And what the introduction of superannuation did is place workers' retirement in the hands of the private sector, the private investment for private profit. And while the profits go up, everybody's happy. But unfortunately, it has changed the way we think. And if we need to give John Howard his just desserts, we need to uh, explain that it was Mr Howard, after Hawke and Keating opened the gate way as far as deregulation, privatisation, globalisation and corporatisation was concerned, that he was able, through the introduction of various legislative agendas which passed through Parliament with the support of the Labor Party in many uh, circumstances, he was able to change the way people fought. We no longer think of ourselves, and I'm not talking about you and me, but I'm talking about, you know, most other people, no longer think of ourselves as part of a community. We may think of ourselves as Australians, but we don't think of ourselves as part of a community. We don't think we have any future beyond the private investment for private profit mantra, which we hear every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year of our lives. And that's the dilemma. Most people now see themselves because of superannuation, not as people working in various industries, not as people who are self-employed, who are trying to make a buck against the corporatised transnational corporations which control economic activity in this country, but they think themselves as little investors. Little investors, and it was no wonder that the Labor Party lost the last federal election two years ago when they attempted to introduce the idea of removing franking credits, which is a fancy word for a bonus from the taxpayer to people who own shares. 
Because although most, most people don't own shares, nearly everybody owns shares through the superannuation funds. So we have seen a change in the way Australians think. They no longer think of themselves as part of a community, part of a mutual, cooperative community. And we've seen the change of language as more and more state functions have been privatised, the change of language, where we're considered to be customers of the Australian Taxation Office or customers of uh, Centrelink or customers of Medicare. We're no longer considered to be citizens. We are customers. We are the sacrificial lamb on the altar of Mammon. And the tragedy is that we are fighting each other to be sacrificed on that altar. We are fighting each other to be sacrificed on that altar. We want to be sacrificed for the good of Mammon, for the good of profit, for the corporate sector. It's quite an extraordinary uh, situation. I mean, it reminds me of a wedge-tail eagle, a wedge-tail eagle sitting on the ground, an injured leg, can't fly. There's nothing more distressing to see than an injured wedge-tail eagle. And if you've seen one, and there are a lot of injuries as far as wedge-tail eagles are concerned, especially on this country's uh, rural highways, there's nothing more distressing. Flapping around, nowhere to go, can't fly. And then you see a wedge-tail eagle up in the sky, in its all its glory, gliding through the sky. That's the way we should think of ourselves, as wedge-tailed eagles, not with a broken leg littered on the side of the highway, but as wedge-tailed eagles flying about, surveying what we see, in control of our destiny, because we've changed the way we think. We no longer think of ourselves as isolated, impoverished, intellectually and socially impoverished individual units who are bashing our head against a brick wall trying to make sense of the situation we find ourselves in, but concerned citizens who know, not believe, there's no point in believing, who know that ultimately in a democratic society, ultimate political authority doesn't, hand in the, doesn't lie in the hands of the state, it doesn't lie in the hands of the government of the day, it doesn't lie in the corporate sector, it doesn't lie in cultural norms, it lies in the hands of an engaged public. And that's the key word, engaged. For far too long, we have been reduced as a people, as a communities and as individuals to impoverished, intellectually, socially impoverished spectators booing and ahhing but never having the ability to change what's happening on that field. You're listening to the Atticus World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.
www.ordinaryfaith.org.au. Now, on the 25th of April, which is Sunday, 2021, we will have Anzac Day commemorations. Now, I've got no problem with Anzac Day commemorations. I've no problem with us remembering those people who have died in struggles, mainly fighting overseas wars for overseas warlords. But I do have problems with the lies and half-truths and the innuendos which surround Anzac Day. And these lie in the idea which will be promoted on Anzac Day through all media outlets, through all government and opposition representatives, because to criticise Anzac, you know, the structure of Anzac Day is political death. And if I'm politically dead, well, who cares? But let's look at World War I. World War I was not a war which was fought for democracy and freedom. We're constantly told it was fought for democracy and freedom. World War I was a grubby little trade war fought by workers at either end of a gun, either end of a bayonet, for the glory of God, King and country. All you need to do is look at the material that was written during the struggle, not the analysis which has continued to ignore the basic premise on which this war was fought. We're told that we became a nation during World War I because we spilled blood on the battlefields. We will spilt blood on Anzac Day fighting Johnny Turk in Turkey. That's what we're told. It's all about freedom and democracy. Well, most of the wars that Australia has been involved in have not been about freedom and democracy. Let's just look at the 20-year fiasco surrounding Australia's intervention in, Af- in Afghanistan. A 20-year fiasco where we are seeing the most unpalatable truths being slowly squeezed out of that campaign. So let's look at the historical background to World War I. When World War I was declared, and I, th- I think I'm right on this date, I could be wrong, on the 1st of September 1914, or it could have been the 1st of August, the Prime Minister of Australia said that they were at war because Britain was at war and we would spend every shilling and every man that's right, every shilling and every man, to protect the empire. And if you look at the propaganda during this period, it's all about God, king and country. Not one word about fighting Johnny Turk or Fritz because of a fight for freedom and democracy. Not one word. Now, the extraordinary thing is that of a population of 5 million, 403,000 Australians volunteered to fight on the European killing fields. 403,000 volunteers. 
almost everybody to a man and a woman and child supported the war effort when the war was first declared in Australia. But by the end of the war, things had changed dramatically. And they changed dramatically because of the activities of organisations like the Industrial Workers of the World who had a large anarchist contingent who fought against the very reasons World War I was declared, who declared it as a trade war, which had nothing to do with working people and their struggles. Of the 403,000 from a population of 5 million that volunteered to fight in World War I, over 62,000 died overseas. More died in that war, Australians died in that war, than the total number of Australians that's been killed in every war since, including World War Two. Of those that returned, over 60,000 died within 10 years of their war injuries. And tens of thousands of those who returned had what was commonly described in those days as shell shock. Post-traumatic stress disorder, it's called these days, but shell shock. They were so horrified by their experiences and their inability to understand what had happened and why, that they continued to have major psychological issues which affected their partners and wives and children for decades. I remember when I used to broadcast The Anarchist World this week here at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, there was uh, an activist here called Elmer Morton who died a number of years ago, about a decade ago. And Elmer, who I wrote an obituary for, which was published in The Age, was the child of one of these soldiers who had come back from World War I with shell shock. And in the middle of the night, at two or three in the morning, he would grab his gun, herd his children and wife into the dining room, and sit in front of that door, waiting for sunrise because the Germans were coming. And they had to deal with that, not just Elmer, but tens of thousands of families in this country. Because of our involvement in a war, which was essentially fought by workers at either end of a bayonet, whether they were Turkish, whether they were German, you know, whether they were English, whether they were Australian, and the list goes on and on. Workers at either end of a bayonet. That's almost one in three of those that volunteered died within 10 years of their experiences. But it's much stronger than this. As the war progressed, we saw an unlikely coalition resist the government's attempts to introduce conscription. And one of the biggest split in the Labor Party occurred when the Prime Minister of the day, Mr Billy Hughes, plus one-third of the Labor Party representatives, left the Labor Party, crossed the floor, formed a new government with the Conservative Reactionary Opposition in order to try to introduce conscription into Australia. Because let's not forget that in New Zealand and England, 
in Germany, in Turkey. This was not a volunteer war. This was a war which was conducted by people who were conscripted, as occurred in this country in Vietnam in the 1960s and 1970s. So what was the real struggle that occurred during these four pivotal years in Australia's development as a nation? And that pivotal struggle revolved around the anti-conscription struggle, which has been written out of this country's history books. The heroes, if there were any heroes in World War I, were not the generals and the officers who allowed Australian soldiers to be killed in their thousands, 8,000 in one day in the Battle of the Somme in 1917. But the heroes were the men and women, mainly women in Australia, who fought against the introduction of conscription. Sections of the trade union movement, sections of the uh, Roman Catholic Church led by Archbishop Mannix, the industrial workers of the world who spearheaded the struggle against conscription from the very first day the war was declared. He saw it as a rich man's war, whose organisation was banned, whose assets were sealed, seized and whose members were jailed for opposing Australia's participation in World War I, but more importantly, for opposing the introduction of conscription. The Hughes-led government, so concerned about a general strike and so confident of their ability to introduce conscription, held a plebiscite in November 1916 to introduce conscription to send another 60,000 young Australian men to their deaths on the European killing fields. And what happened? What happened? There was a huge anti-conscription movement, despite the oppression which was occurring by governments and various organisations in this country to stop that movement. And that conscription referendum was defeated in November 1916. The Australian people in the plebiscite said, we refuse to send more Australian men to the European killing fields to be sacrificed for God, King and country. And if you look at the radical literature and the reformist literature and just the general literature available to us during that period, you will see how extensive that movement was. The English government was so incensed it continued to place pressure on the Billy Hughes-led government to introduce conscription, irrespective of what the Australian people wanted. And in November 1917, another conscription referendum was introduced, was held. Another pleb- not referendum, my apologies, another, and, and another conscription plebiscite was held. And before that plebiscite was held, we saw one of the largest political gatherings, protests 
ever in the history of this country, which I do not think has been surpassed since then. Melbourne had a population of around three quarters of a million at that period. And the Women's Peace Army, that's right, the Women's Peace Army, which was based at Story Hall in Swanson Street, the Women's Peace Army held a peace march on the eve of the conscription plebiscite in 1917, which drew over 20% of the city's population to this protest. And if you see photographs of these protests, it's a sea of men and women. And the only people who spoke at the gathering were women activists. Think about it. And it was demonstrations like these, the work of tens of thousands of activists who in many cases paid a huge price for their resistance to conscription, which led to the defeat of the second conscription plebiscite in November 1917. So to me, if there are any heroes and heroines in this obscene struggle between superpowers vying for financial advantage. It's those men and women and children involved in the anti-conscription movement who have been written out of this country's history. In every city, in every town, in every suburb, monuments were erected to the return to those who died overseas and those who returned. And today, on the the 25th of April, there will be ceremonies at these monuments. Many of these monuments were erected in the 1920s. To men and a few thousand women and mainly nurses who died overseas basically for nothing, for God, king and country. And we see the history rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and today we see the Anzac commemorations not being a commemoration to the unnecessary slaughter, but we see it as a commemoration to militarism, as a commemoration to imperialism, as a commemoration to history accounts which never existed. So where, where is there a monument to these tens of thousands of men and women whose efforts ensured that another 60,000 young Australian men were not sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country? Where are these monuments? If you live in Melbourne, which I'm familiar with, the only place you will find any acknowledgement of that struggle is in Trades Hall at the corner of Ligon and Victoria Parade. Not outside Trades Hall, but inside Trades Hall. A small little monument erected to that struggle. And people say... Joe, why do you spend so much time looking at this issue? Well, the past is pivotal to who we are and what we will become. It's a little bit like our inability 
to grapple with the issue that this country was invaded in the most brutal manner and men and women and children who had lived on this continent for over 60,000 years were slaughtered in the most indiscriminate, cruel ways in order that we could graze sheep on their land. And Australian history is replete with these examples which are fed to us with our mother's milk, which are fed to us in schools, which are fed to us through the media, which are fed to us through historical records. They are fed to us constantly and we begin to believe, not only begin but believe implicitly in propaganda, in what is nothing more than propaganda to ensure that small section society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication continues, continues to dominate every aspect of our lives. One of the most famous or infamous, depending on what side of the fence you're on, posters which was put out during World War One was a poster which was put out by the Industrial Workers of the World in Sydney in 1916. And it said, Workers. And it said, Workers, Workers of Australia, follow your masters. Don't volunteer. Because, interestingly, once again, it was the children of the people who formed this nation, it was their children who were sacrificed. You didn't see the children of the rich and powerful volunteering to fight for the glory of God, king and country. The list goes on and on. Well, you don't believe me? Look it up. You don't have to believe me. But this country is based on myths. And these myths have prevented us from becoming the people and the society we should be. We are one of the richest nations on the planet. Richest in terms of resources, richest in terms of intellect, richest in terms of ability. But we have squandered we have squad these advantages to a small section of society which continue to dominate every aspect of our existence. For far too long we have believed the myths and the propaganda. We have, for far too long, we have stood on the sidelines. We refuse to become engaged. We have been involved in the peripheral and the ephemeral, thinking that if we keep our heads down, nothing will Bad will happen to us. Well, bad things happen when good people do nothing. Simple. Bad things happen when people, good people do nothing. So I said before, the purpose of this program, the Anarchist World this week, is to change the way we think as a people. To, have, to accept the past... Not criticise it, accept it for what it is and move on. 
and use that fresh understanding of who we are and what we're capable of becoming, use that fresh understanding as the jumping point for the struggle to create a society which is based on egalitarian values. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting today's program. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you're listening to this program and are interested in becoming involved in the struggle to change things, you can always become a member of public interest before corporate interest. No, it's not a revolutionary organisation. It's a reformist organisation involved in a, a party politics, parliamentary politics, as well as boycotts, direct action, strikes, petitions, and the list goes on and on. We're quite happy to use every legal avenue open to us to change the way people think. Because once we change the way people think, things will never be the same again. All right. Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide. The last time there was a Royal Commission into the welfare of veterans in this country was in 1924. That's 97 years ago. 1924. And it took constant badgering from veterans and their supporters in order to obtain this Royal Commission. And although they obtained a petition with over 400,000 names, it was only when a few of the Liberal Party backbenchers buckled that the Prime Minister was forced to hold this Royal Commission. And as people know, what a Royal Commission can investigate and can't investigate is totally dependent on the terms of reference. And currently there's a struggle to define the terms of reference, not leave the terms of reference just in the hands of the government. And more importantly, most veterans groups do not want somebody from the military establishment, especially brass, to be appointed as a royal commissioner because for far too long what the brass have been doing, as we've seen in Afghanistan, is protecting their asses not supporting the men and women who make up the bulk of veterans who have been spurned, pushed aside, ignored by the very organisations which have been set up to look after them. Now, obviously, there are three different strands to this debate and possibly only one strand will be Examined, and that's what happens to veterans once they return. But I'm interested in two other strands. One, I'm interested in the concept of moral injury. Moral injury, which is a, a new concept. It's an old concept, but it's a new concept as far as people's thinking is concerned. The concept of veterans having issues with moral injury. And we've seen that in Afghanistan with the relevations which have been occurring regarding the atrocities conducted by some Australian troops in that theatre of war. Moral injury. The first thing I think the Royal Commission should look at, and I'm sure they won't be given this type, this uh, avenue, is to look at the type of wars 
that we as a nation are involved in. The types of wars. We lost the Vietnam conflict with the USA. We've now lost the Afghanistan conflict. We lost the Iraqi conflict. I mean, Saddam Hussein was thrown from power, but the basket case that Iraq has become and the rise and rise of Islamic State, obviously, is a consequence of that policy. It's all very well to say that people fought bravely for their country and followed orders. But what type of war? Well, shouldn't we have a debate in this country about the type of war that we should be involved in? Should be we involved in wars, fighting other people's wars at the behest of our allies for no good reason? sacrifice men and women and their families and dependents for generations to come because as a nation our government of the day decided to become involved in a war that has no moral justification and where that's where the concept of moral injury comes as far as veterans are concerned it's all very well to be involved in a war, which is very clear what you're fighting for, as we saw in World War II, where the enemy was fascism, where fascists had been able to gain the means of the controls of the state and were using that control to destroy millions of people. That's a moral war. But the concept, there's no such thing as a good war or a bad war. There is morality Involved, And if we've got governments who continue to jump up and down at the behest of an ally and not consider the cost that's going to be paid by men and women involved in that theatre of war and their families and dependents, not just for a year or a decade, but a lifetime, it's, in, it's, it's critical that we have some type of constitutional arrangements which prevents the government of the day from exercising military force in theatres of war which have nothing to do with us. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Let's look at the Tanamenuay Morbohina campaign which was initiated through the anarchist world this week, almost 15, 20 years ago. I mean, the, the symbol we chose was lest we forget. Lest we forget. Lest we forget. We had tens of thousands of men, women and children killed in this country in the most brutal fashion during a colonisation war, which continues today in, in its various formats. And we forgot about it. We wrote out of the history books. We ignored it. Then we had thousands, tens of thousands of Australians who have died fighting other people's wars in other people's lands. And we remember them and we give them a, a veneer of responsibility. Think about it. It's at the type of war. Japan, post-World War II, was forced to have a peace clause 
in its constitution, which meant that its forces could not be used to pursue overseas adventurism and could only be used to defend Japan. And it continues to still have that clause in its constitution, and although various right-wing and reactionary governments have attempted to remove that clause, they have not been able to. So maybe we should be looking at that as a society so that we don't have this unnecessary disasters that occur as far as veterans are concerned, not just on the battlefield but when they return home. A clause in our constitution which prevents the government of the day from becoming involved in military adventurism at the behest of so-called allies. The next thing I think the Royal Commission needs to look at is the concept of the training. It's no accident that it's the most highly trained troops in Afghanistan, the special operations groups, who are the ones who are facing the accusations of murder on the battlefield. Extrajudicial killings on the battlefield. Because 99.9% of human beings are not natural-born killers. You're not a natural-born killer. I'm not a natural-born killer. If you go through the jails of this country and look at all the people who've been charged and convicted of murder... In the huge majority of cases, you will find, whether you accept it or not, there are different circumstances which lead to that killing. It may be a psychiatric illness. It may be morbid jealousy. It may be people trying to exert total control over another individual, especially women. So what the military process does it creates in the upper echelons, in the more sophisticated, the more trained troops. It makes people into natural-born killers. It makes them into natural-born killers so they can actually kill dispassionately. And we've seen in Afghanistan that, you know, blow into or blow over into other aspects of the way they functioned, certain Sections of certain groups functioned in that society. So maybe the Royal Commission should look at the training which creates natural-born killers in our armed forces. Maybe they should look at that. And then last but not least, obviously the veterans' welfare when they come back. Because we're told every day by self-serving politicians that, well... They died for our country. They did their duty. They made their sacrifice. But they don't show the same respect to the dependents and those who returned who've been traumatised by their experiences, who feel a moral injury because the war itself was unjustified, who cannot sleep because of what they saw, who find themselves in this situation. And we've seen over and over and over again how the Department of Veterans Affairs treats people, how it ignores their issues, how it is driving people to higher veterans to higher rates of suicide. 
And I think one of the important things the Royal Commission should look at is the outsourcing of services to veterans to the private sector. Ah, I hear you say, I didn't know that, Joe. Department of Veterans Affairs, which has thousands of people involved in looking after the welfare of veterans when they return home, well, over 50% are privately employed companies. The function of the government involving veterans has been outsourced to the private sector. There is no continuity of care. There is minimal face-to-face interaction. You're dealing with a blamanche of people who have no impact on the way you are living your life as a veteran. So these are three things I think the Royal Commission should look at. Hopefully it looks at at least one of these. One is the type of wars this country has been involved in and whether we should have a clause in our constitution which prevents the government of the day from embarking on military adventurism for the sake of satisfying an ally, not for the protection of this country. Secondly, we should look at the training which is given to the upper echelons of this country's military forces in terms of how they human beings are born are turned into natural born killers. And thirdly, how do you rehabilitate somebody who survived this when they come home? And the provision of adequate services which are based on eye to eye contact, face to face contact, services which are not outsourced to a private sector which is there to make a buck. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. So keep saying, change the way you think, things will never be the same again for you, people around you, and for society as a whole. Climate change, they still don't get it. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe it. Sometimes I wonder whether I'm part of a comedy show. Hmm. Now, I heard the Deputy Prime Minister or somebody masquerading as the Deputy Prime Minister or was it the Deputy Leader of the National Party talking about the fact that, you know, that you know it's regional and rural Australia which is bearing the price of the social. That's right, the social adventurism. And they're going to put another $500 million into gas, you know, gas-fired power stations and into you know, trapping carbon and we're not going to change the coal industry and it's all full steam ahead. Talk about inability. Talk about denial. Denial. That's right. Denial. Talk about denial among upper echelons of the government. Talk about the Australian pariah going to the carbons, emissions, little little um, uh, Knees Up Mother Brown conference, which will be held by the 40 of the nation's world leaders the next two weeks. Talk about denial as far as the climate emergency is concerned. Look, I live in regional Australia, and I can tell you regional Australia is just as concerned, if not more concerned, about the climate emergency than people in the CBD because we are suffering at the coalface, sorry for the pun, 
And to see these National Party dinosaurs continue representing large sections of rural and regional Australia highlights how important it is that we change the way we think about the climate emergency we all face. Now, I'd like to end up on two issues, just to glance at them, as we haven't got much time left. One is professional sport. Now, there's been a bit of a hullabaloo regarding the English Premier League. Not that I'm particularly concerned, but it looks like people think they've been betrayed. Well, professional sport, in inverted commas, is about making a buck. The coach of Tottenham Soccer Club has been fined a little bit early. He's going to get a $54 million payout. Could you imagine that? I wish I got a $54 million payout. I could set up my own radio station and bore you 24 hours a day while I snore at night. Now, you know the way, unfortunately in Australia, we've gone down the same pathway as they've gone in Europe and the USA. Most clubs are privately owned. In Australia, all the basketball clubs are private franchises. All the A-League soccer clubs are private franchises. Even the AFL, which is a member-based organisation, flirted with the idea of privatisation when they privatised North Melbourne, which is a privately owned club. Ultimately, if you allow your club to be taken over by the private sector, you really have no control about what happens. And although you may be the long-suffering fan who's dedicated their life to watching their team you know, win a pennant or a medal, the fact is you're nothing more than a little consumer. So how do you change this if you belong to a professional sporting club, which is owned by outside owners who have bought that club as an investment? It's very simple. In a capitalist society, it's the sponsors who pay the money to the television stations, who then pay the money to the owners of the club, who then pay the money to the players. So if you are part of a professional club which is privately owned and you're not happy in the direction it's taking and you want to retake control, boycott the sponsors. Boycott the sponsors. If you boycott the sponsors, they will not provide the money to the television stations which then go to the club. What's the point of being just a spectator in a sporting club when you can actually be involved in the day-to-day running of that club. Think about it. If you give up control, who pays the piper? Controls the situation. And last but not least, I can't believe it, accountability and justice. Now, somebody's just been sentenced in the US of A for the murder of George Floyd, and I'm thinking of Australia, accountability and justice as far as this nation's First Nations people are concerned. Accountability and justice. Think about it. Accountability and justice. 30 years after the Royal Commission, incarcerations have doubled from 15% to 30% of Indigenous Australians. 30 years after the Royal Commission, deaths in custody have doubled. 
So do we have accountability and justice in this country? Have we ever had accountability and justice? Maybe the United States is far ahead of us. They've got treaties, individual treaties, with their, uh, First, Nation, with their uh, First Nations people. They are making attempts to tackle the endemic racism in their society. But are we doing anything as a society? It's all very well having a few demonstrations, but unless those who make the rules take notice, nothing will change. Now, if you're interested in following this debate, there's the end of genocidal inaction. It's an online event marking the 30th anniversary of the... uh, Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And it's on Thursday, April the 22nd. That's tomorrow. Thursday, April the 22nd. And, oh, this is heavy stuff. 7pm Australian Eastern Time. Go to monash.zoom.us forward slash join and enter meeting ID. Hmm. 8274950 and passcode 393973. I've been just given this as I walked into the studio. I think it's worthwhile. If you're into the Zoom land, it's worthwhile looking at. Anything is worthwhile looking at to resolve the issues. Next week, we'll look at May Day, the history of May Day in this country, and we will be resuscitating our public housing campaign. It's about time somebody got out there and resuscitated that campaign because nobody seems to be interested in public housing in a position of authority in this country. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the community radio satellite. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can access my thoughts, if you're game, YouTube. What is it? YouTube, YouTube forgotten what it's called oh pibsi pibsi p-i-b-c-i underscore a-u that's public interest people corporate interest pages anarchistmedia.org pibsi.net download the application form take a punt become a member facebook page joseph toscana toscana for the public it just goes on and on this footprint virtual footprint useless footprint in the majority of cases but it's there if you want to do it but, you know, I'd like to see you come out on the streets, join us in some of the actions we, we uh, organise. And if you can't join our actions, organise your own actions because it's an engaged public which makes the difference. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station via the Community Radio Network next week. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Change the way you think. Things will never be the same again. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.